there are such gross inadequacies and gaps in mental health care. And it's such low hanging fruit at this point to address them. And so it's what I was just saying before, like we have safe and effective and evidence-based digital therapies for people with these conditions where like they're not getting any treatment. They're only getting medications that have significant risk and side effect profiles. And all we have to do is begin to integrate them into healthcare to provide traditional reimbursement pathways for them. Welcome to the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Berhovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode, and it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. In the previous episode, I spoke with Acacia Parks, founder of Liquid Amber Consulting. Liquid Amber helps digital health and DTX companies support the claims they want to make using scientific evidence in the ways that will be compelling to the audiences they care about. Today, I spoke with Jenna Carl, Chief Medical Officer at Big Health. In their own words, Big Health believes in mental health care for all and that their digital therapeutics are safe and effective non-drug options for mental health. But before we dive in, I've had the pleasure of hosting Peter Hames, founder of Big Health, on this podcast in March of 2021. You'll find the link to that episode in the show notes. Given the current DTX industry dynamics, I thought it was appropriate to bring back Big Health for an update. I first briefly met Jenna at Your Coach's Global Health and Wellbeing Coaching Symposium in 2021, where we hosted a panel on sleep. Jenna rocked the virtual stage then, as she did now. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jenna. Jenna, welcome to the DTX podcast. We had the pleasure of having Peter, and I had to look this up, back in March of 2021. So first of all, it's great to have you on the show and would love to get to know you as a person and your obvious contribution to big health and its growth. So please, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself, but also one key interesting fact about you. Sure. Happy to. Thank you so much, Eugene, for having me on the show. And I think, yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful podcast. So I'd love to contribute to it. So a little about me, I'm a clinical psychologist by training and specifically my background is in treatment development and outcomes research. And I've had a focus on anxiety and depression and closely related disorders, particularly. And I've done that work in academic and clinical settings. And then since I've been at Big Health as well uh, in a digital therapeutic setting, and I think the fun fact about me is that I am a third generation uh, woman working in healthcare in my family. So my grandma and my mom both had healthcare careers and it was something I initially tried to avoid. I worked first in government and consulting and then couldn't resist and ended up uh, pursuing a career in psychology. And to be honest, it's, I couldn't be happier. It's been like such a perfect career for me. And I love it from the research side, the clinical side, and working in an environment where I feel like we're actually making a difference on innovation and impact. So it's for something, something in my genes, I think, around healthcare. It's amazing to hear these stories once you kind of enter healthcare. And I always say, as I entered healthcare from a different industry, I'm never coming out of it. Of course, never say never, but I just don't see myself. It's just such an impactful industry, of course. Well, I obviously did some digging. Big Health has been around. 
You've entered the company roughly seven years ago. So I think Big Health was already up and running for a number of years. But obviously, in the earlier stages of the company, individuals are brought in for a specific reason. What was happening at the time that you were brought in? Maybe tell us a little bit more of the color of you entering Big Health. Absolutely. You did your homework correctly. Uh, So I joined Big Health in 2016. I came from academic clinical environment at that time and moved over really desiring to make an impact in people's lives and really get people access to evidence-based behavioral treatments. And the reason was that Big Health at the time, which had recently re-headquartered in the United States, in San Francisco specifically from London, and was a sleep company, but was looking to become a broader mental health company. So I specifically came in really with a mandate to extend our company and therapeutics beyond sleep. And so anxiety was the first condition that we actually all agreed, the founders and myself made sense as the next condition to focus on, and then developing a therapeutic pipeline beyond that for big health. And so that was why I came in and very pleased to say that that is the direction we went. And we had a lot of fun building our first anxiety treatment myself, the founders, and uh, my kind of partner in crime at the time, the head of product that joined at the same time that I did. And I think Big Health is obviously known, and the flagship product has been Sleepio, focused on sleep. From a consumer experience, and notice I don't say patient, but a consumer experience perspective, maybe remind our listeners what experience, the end customer consumer experience on using, let's switch to the anxiety or mental health product, Daylight, versus the Sleepio product. Maybe walk us through to visualize. Sure, happy to. Well, I would say we do say patient because we are providing clinical treatments And so they really are designed for people who have symptoms and uh, diagnosis consistent with for anxiety, for generalized anxiety disorder, which is um, the one of the most common and kind of core anxiety disorders, which you think of as sort of like the mother anxiety disorder, because all other anxiety disorders have this share the same kind of common element of worry and, and anxiety that defines JD. So for us, we are we are um really focused on building clinical grade non-drug digital treatments for specifically for conditions that tend to be high prevalence and poorly treated. And in many cases, what that really means is it's that people only have access to medication options that tend to be not the recommended choice or the preferred choice by patients or providers. And so that's true for GAD and anxiety, and it's true for insomnia and, and as well. And so What we have done is really tried to create custom designed proprietary versions of cognitive behavioral treatments digitally delivered, digitally designed. These are different from your standard manualized in-person CBT protocols, because frankly, it's not quite effective to just copy over an in-person therapy protocol into a digital app. And so we have custom designed the modules and the patient experience to really get the most effective outcomes for people as quickly as possible so that they can recover and get back to their life and have good mental health. And we then need to validate our treatments in our in research studies because these are not previously validated. You can't just adopt CBT into a digital treatment and assume that it's effective. So that's all to say, that's sort of how we make the programs. But to walk you through the experience from a patient standpoint, it's very similar for both of our programs, but you know, to take you through daylight a little bit more specifically, 
Ultimately, we provide tremendous different types of outreach and campaigns to reach people that may be in need. Often this has historically been with employees in large employers. And ultimately, we are very effective at helping people understand what our treatments do and offer. And then people tend to come to uh, our landing page and like check out what they offer, download the program, so you know, download Daylight. And once they download the, the treatment, the first part is, of course, an assessment and uh, gathering information about their symptoms of anxiety and related symptoms, health history, what we need to understand to make sure that they're in the right place and to then tailor the treatment such that it's going to be relevant for them and have the biggest impact as soon as possible. It's really important in treatment to show people early on that you know what you're doing and that you can help them get better. And so it's very much designed to kind of give them quick wins so that once they start the treatment beyond the assessment, it's essentially interactive modules that they do over the course of four weeks where we're really trying to design very, very brief exercises that they can do first in the app, but then we help them do them outside of the app for every day, four weeks, such that they are changing their thoughts and behaviors, making new behaviors automatic in place of unhelpful or maladaptive habits that were in place previously. And we assess people throughout with clinically validated measures of anxiety, in this case, particularly the GAD2, which is a well-known brief measure of anxiety. And that it allows us to make sure people are improving or on track and supporting them to get to remission or recovery as soon as possible. So that's like the treatment experience in a nutshell. Love it. And you mentioned employees. And I think for any of the entrepreneurs out there that are selling to the employer market, you also mentioned engagement, right? And finding the relevant employees with the challenge. Can you talk a little bit about your engagement numbers and in somewhat some of the tactics that you work on with those employers to actually engage the employees, right? Because many just don't trust their employers. There's a multitude of reasons for not engaging with the tools that the employer provides. Yeah, it's interesting. We have become incredibly effective at reaching employees. And so, you know, over the years of working with employers, like there's all different types of campaigns and deployment that we have designed that help get us to the right people at the right time that need our type of product. Now, what's harder is what I would call like full treatment adherence. And, and I actually don't like to call it engagement because I don't actually fundamentally see that as like what we're doing. We're, we're talking about treatment adherence. That is hard for all areas of medicine. For medication and therapy, adherence is abysmal. Stats on medication adherence are for mental health, the areas that we're in. You know, 30% of people don't fill their first script, 50% never refill. And so, and then for therapy, like the average number of therapy sessions that people do is one. And so by comparison, like the early digital therapeutics category is doing pretty well, if you think about it, if you know you think about that sense. And certainly a big help. We feel good about how we approach adherence and supporting people to get to the right dose for them. And so, you know, ultimately we have proven over and over again in difference in different populations and different settings that we are delivering clinical outcomes to people. And we're doing that through supporting people to overcome the barriers that they need to get the right amount of treatment. We're still trying to improve adherence. And I think, and we've already made lots of gains over the years, but we're getting our, we're getting people better and our therapeutics only continue to get better themselves. And so I see it as like, this is just part of the work of building a treatment. 
You mentioned medication adherence and would love to dive a little bit deeper into your CVS relationship. I'm assuming this is with the pharmacy benefit management arm, but that's just my assumption. So would love that. And especially focusing on that medication targeting, right? Because I think obviously part of the PBM industry and where they make money is the actual, the molecular prescription. So super curious for myself, but also our listeners on that relationship. If you could dive deeper, please. Sure. Happy to. So yeah, you're absolutely right. We entered a partnership with CVS in 2019. And actually it was a very landmark partnership at the time. We were the first company to establish a placement on what CVS called their point solutions management program, but ultimately it was the first sort of digital formulary. So we sort of launched it with them. And since that time we have shared 1 million members in the book of business And as you've noted, one of the outcomes of that relationship has been our ability to expanded outreach and targeting to specific individuals that we could identify as potentially higher need and kind of particular relevance to our therapeutics by looking at prescription medication usage. And so essentially what that we've called that medication targeting. And what's really important about that is for insomnia and for anxiety, medications are not the recommended first-line treatment, generally speaking. And that's because the benefit to side effect profile is not optimal. And CBT has an improved benefit harm profile. And so that is why ideally you want to provide CBT ahead of medications, or at the very least, make sure that people who are on medications know that they have another option. And so that's really where medication targeting is interesting, is that we can make sure that patients who we know are high need and likely have the mental health conditions that we address and likely aren't satisfied with medication alone. And so we're able to identify who those people are and then do targeted outreach that really is customized to their specific needs and helps make sure that those people know that there's another option. So that's how the program works essentially. If I go back to the roots of the company, I think still in UK, you kind of started with a direct-to-consumer model, and maybe it's a little bit of a harsh word, but abandoning DTC, and I know that pivot was as you were brought in for the US market. Why abandon DTC? I mean, people need help out there. So just curious on some of the decision-making processes there. Yeah, absolutely. It's a hard decision because in early area of medicine, you you really generally are speaking, trying to experiment and figure out the best way to get people your offering your solution. But ultimately, the founders, they were very committed to making sure that the mental health care that we were providing was a part of true health care. And it wasn't further degradation of mental health care, which has been historically a problem of like sort of not offering mental health parity and people really not being able to get evidence-based mental health care through the traditional care pathways. And so we don't believe that people should have to pay for their mental health care out of pocket. We believe that it should be a covered benefit and they should have access to best-in-class evidence-based treatments and and first-line treatments. And so the only way to do that was to approach distribution pathways that were in line with healthcare and making it a covered benefit. So we have since then only pursued distribution where it is covered for people, where people do not have to pay for it, it themselves. And so that has, you know, initially led us working with large employers. And of course, now, you know, we've got broad uh, distribution uh, in the NHS and Scotland in particular, where we're, you know, paid for by the national health system there. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Jenna Carl, Chief Medical Officer at Big Health. 
I've seen, I've heard, I think actually in Brian Dolan's detailed report in Big Health around Peter's view at the time on this dichotomy of the subscription incentive model that, and you even alluded to, right, the treatment is four weeks, right? And the goal is to kind of help individuals within four weeks. Now, the realities of everything from unit economics to scaling, there's only in the large self-insured employer space in US is what, about 150 million or something I think half of the country roughly is in the, something like that. So there's obviously not unlimited individuals. Maybe you can talk about this dichotomy that Peter brought up on the subscription model and that continuous charging. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is more of a perception than a reality. The reason being that, unfortunately, it's not that there is a set percentage of the population that has some anxiety and you treat them and then you're done. Every year, 20 to 30% in these days, more actually since the pandemic has increased rates, but you know, really up to 40% of the population has clinically significant insomnia and anxiety symptoms. And that's every year. It's not the same people. And maybe some of the same people have a reoccurrence, others it's new people. And so there's plenty of work to do. And so that's not been an issue, you know, as far as we've seen it. And we are very focused at this time around treating those acute episodes of care which are just very much untreated right currently, or people don't have sufficient options to treat those currently. We can, I think, over time work to do more interim support when people are feeling better and before they relapse again. But to be honest, um, our Tegra program does have really good longevity in results. And so, you know, we are generally, once people do get a good treatment for that episode, they are able to see continued benefit for, you know, years at that point. I remember interviewing Peter and one of the things that he was proud of is that Big Health was one of the most studied digital health companies. And so let's get to the heart of what you love is the clinical evidence. Talk us through some of the earlier decision-making processes around building that evidence base and bringing to the ultimately patients and consumers evidence-based treatment. Absolutely. First, thank you. We and I are incredibly proud to lead the field in our evidence collection. We have over 80 plus peer-reviewed publications at this point. And these are our publications. I mean, not that we've done them all. In fact, most of these are done by independent outside investigators studying our therapeutics. But ultimately, these are on our therapeutics or about our methodologies, validating our clinical assessment instruments. And that is very different from many, many companies, you know, talk about papers that frankly were just done, are not related to their products. And so it's a more generic evidence base, but it's not an evidence base for their product. So we're incredibly pleased with that. You know, it's, it's nearly 30,000 patients have been included in our clinical research to date. And these studies have repeatedly demonstrated the safety and effectiveness of sleepio and daylight across a variety of populations and different settings all different types of comorbidities, health comorbidities, mental health comorbidities. One of the areas that's incredibly positive from my standpoint is we validated use of sleeping in pregnant women. There's such limited options for pregnant women to address their insomnia and sleep problems, which are plentiful, as you can imagine. So just very pleased that we're kind of, we're moving the needle from a research standpoint. And like, really that all goes back to our DNA and it also goes back to the standard in healthcare. And so I'm a clinical researcher, so I mean, there's just wasn't going to be another w approach that I took. But also our co-founder, Colin Espy, is one of the leading clinical researchers of sleep in the world. And, you know, he still runs a large lab at University of Oxford in the UK. 
30 to 40 some academics working there doing sleep research day in and day out. And so we're ultimately very committed to the role of research. It's not just because we like research. It's not for the sake of publishing. (laughs) It's not for the sake of publishing. But the fundamental standard in healthcare is that you have replication of safety and effectiveness data behind your specific therapeutics for the specific conditions you're treating. And the only way you can do that is through rigorous controlled clinical trials. And so that has been our standard all along. And we, you know, I continue to think that it is one of the ways that the field is maturing and people are starting to understand this difference. I think initially there was just a lot of noise in the whole, in the broad digital health space and people not really understanding what the bar should be from an evidence standpoint. And I think it's becoming pretty clear. And I think this is somewhat thanks to the digital therapeutics industry is like really saying, look, the bar is randomized from clinical controlled trials, the exact same bar that you'd have for any other area of medicine, medication, medical devices. It's the exact same bar. And it's a high bar. The way I look at this is lots of companies out there are, to your point, using other people's studies almost as a proxy. The next level is companies touting, and I'm going to make up a number, but even in the trial, N equals 20, which comparing to your 30K overall across the studies, how do you look at that? What is that clinically significant number to tout a good outcome, right? Is 20, 30 enough as a a cohort for an earlier stage company? Because it is a commitment, right? And that's why a big kudos to the team at Big Health to taking that commitment on very early on. Thank you for saying that. It's a great question. And I think it gets to why it is hard for non-researchers to validate clinical trials. And the reason is that there's no right number in the abstract. It all comes down to your trial design and what power you need to reach statistical and clinical significance. And so ultimately, a 20-person trial is not going to be sufficient in under any circumstances to be taking a therapeutic to market to be reaching millions of people. You could have three very rigorous randomized controlled trials. One of them might be 50 people. Another might be 200. Another might be 500. And if those trials are done well, designed well, in terms of the inclusion exclusion criteria and a rigorous control condition, like that is absolutely generalizable information. And in fact, it can be a misunderstanding that you can get payers saying, well, I need to see how this works in my population. And we say, that's the whole reason you do an RCT is that it's generalizable. We don't have to do an RCT in every single population we go to at this point. There's implementation varies by setting, and you do often want to kind of think through your implementation and work out the kinks of implementation. But once you've done a few rigorous RCTs that replicate findings, those are generalizable. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hi, Jenna. Given your clinical differentiation as a product, why not go for an FDA approval and be prescribed as well? Thank you, Chandana, for the question. So while we do have sufficient evidence to pursue an FDA approach, you have probably read that we are keeping our options open. And we'll just say that it won't be a surprise, but today is not the day we're going to be breaking news on that front. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I'm going to hop in here. I had to crack up that. It's always a challenging thing in a podcast to address some of these things, but thank you. I'm going to then jump into the next probably challenging question for you. Any plans for new additional products? What does that pipeline of non-FDA products look like? It's a great question and it's not challenging. I'm very excited about our pipeline. However, of course, some of it I can't share at this point. But what I can say is that depression, which is very closely related to insomnia and anxiety, clinically speaking, as well as really similar to our insomnia and anxiety conditions, an area of high prevalence and very and poor treatment where patients and providers are not satisfied with the treatment options. So depression is a natural next step in the progression for us. And again, and it's another area where behavioral treatments are really an effective and uh, recommended first line option. So that is our focus next in line, but we do have an exciting pipeline beyond that. I just am not a, not a privilege to share more about now, but would be, would love to kind of, you know, uh, keep you posted on that. Understood. Listen, as a privately held company, got to keep some things out there, right? So totally understood. Well, let's touch on probably one of my favorite topics these days. Big kudos to the Pair team, again, trailblazing along with you guys. But I always use you know Pair and Big Health as two, I don't want to say opposing, but very different go-to-market strategies. One, as we've been discussing, non-prescription, where Corey and team kind of went PDT from day one. Curious on just your thoughts or any comments on some of the recent pair bankruptcy. What I could say about that is what we believe a successful strategy boils down to is growing covered lives, growing number of patients treated, and really making sure you've got a strong trajectory for the business. And so we've treated 150,000 people since the pandemic started, 300,000 people overall by the end of last year. And so we feel like, you know, we're, we're definitely out there delivering value to patients, providers, insurers, and there's a huge need and for mental health conditions and for additional treatment options for mental health conditions. And frankly, there is no other way we're going to solve it. Make no mistake about it. There's no way that we can train providers to cover the shortfalls we have. Additionally, many, many people do not want traditional treatments. And that is increasingly the case. I'm a practitioner myself. I still keep a small clinical practice. I, I think there's lots of room for all of us to be contributing to solving this problem, but we're not going to solve it with practitioners alone. And we at Big Health and you know other digital therapeutic companies are delivering outcomes. We're satisfying patients, we're satisfying providers, we're creating cost savings. So I think we are creating a category that has a real place in healthcare and is delivering value. And I think it's still ultimately early days in the field, of course. But I think the other thing that is a little bit problematic when you sort of talk globally is you can't lump all digital therapeutics together. It would be like saying all medications are the same, right? Like there's like terrible medications and there's highly effective and well-tolerated medications. And so this idea that like if one digital therapeutic doesn't work or struggles to commercialize, that the rest would be in a similar boat does not make any sense at all. And so I think that's what I would love to convey better is for people, you really need to look at the specific digital therapeutic, the specific need it's solving and get to that level before you can really make sense of the landscape. I absolutely love that answer, right? Because I think to your point, every company, every product has its own DNA for lack of a better term, right? And so how that reaction to that individual and that personalization techniques matter based on where they are in their health journey. 
the next topic I wanted to go to, uh, which is sort of, as you said, God is the mother of anxiety and there's offshoots. There's this topic of that pair and PDT, but also standalone digital therapeutic. And I don't like calling it versus, but the question of this disease management 2.0 slash virtual care slash managed care, however you want to call it, aka humans such as health coaches in the equation. Can you talk dichotomy of where the industry is as a standalone versus a care model? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great question. And I do think it's another area where if you don't sort of look to the micro example of like the specific company, the specific therapeutic, you can sort of jump to conclusions around the whole category that aren't correct. And so what I would say is like, it really depends what any specific therapeutic and company is trying to do. And there are some therapeutic areas where it is much more common to use health coaches and there's more of an established reason for doing that and or more need for kind of embedded integrated care. And so I think that can be one reason why companies are pursuing that model where it really is more rooted in the clinical need. As we getting closer to the end of this podcast, we'd love to get your advice. And I think, you know, as we discussed many of the guests advice to other entrepreneurs, and I love that you want to give a little bit of food for thought to policymakers here. Thanks for the opportunity. Hopefully they listen and are moved. So from my standpoint, the biggest challenge that we have in the field is creating broad mechanisms for reimbursement. So we've pursued, I think, a good strategy at Big Health of kind of fit for a purpose reimbursement where we'll work in different systems to create the reimbursement channels that work. But look, the ideal is that there are just like other areas of care, that there are standard reimbursement mechanisms that can be applied everywhere. And that's what's really going to unlock like full access to digital therapeutics. And so what I would say to policymakers, you know, both people writing medical policy within health plans, as well as policymakers in Washington, you know, including Center for Medicaid, et cetera, is that do not lump digital therapeutics together. This is, you know, again, you need to look for examples where it's clear that digital therapeutics are evidence-based, effective, delivering value on par with other types of medical care. And there's plenty of those examples. And that is the evidence that we need to start creating these mechanisms such that we can actually fix mental health care and healthcare in the United States and get people access to evidence-based, safe digital therapeutics that are solving huge gaps in care. And so it's going to take policymakers in all of these different places to start recognizing that and not looking for excuses to be not ready to accept a new type of treatment category. It's always hard to do something new, right? Or be the first to do something new. And so I think it's like to counteract that bias, I just, I really hope policymakers can lean in and look at the value that's being created, even if it's not the case for every single digital therapeutic, there certainly are examples, including what we're doing at Big Health, where there is a real strong like basis and rationale for providing broad reimbursement. Jenna, we started with you and some interesting facts, and we'd love to end this episode with you. What gets you up in the morning? Well, what wakes me up is my young children. And so I'm already probably a little sleep deprived today. But like, no, but what keeps me energized and at this mission is that there are such gross inadequacies and gaps in mental health care. And it's such low hanging fruit at this point to address them. And so it's what I was just saying before, like we have safe and effective and evidence-based digital therapies for people with these conditions where like 
They're not getting any treatment. They're only getting medications that have significant risk and side effect profiles. And all we have to do is begin to integrate them into healthcare to provide traditional reimbursement pathways for them. That's all we have to do and start working together to actually get these therapies to people that need them. And so I'm like incredibly optimistic that that's where we're going to end up. I hope it's in call it five years and not in 20 years. We certainly saw a lot of rapid movement during the pandemic. And so I think I'm even more kind of excited that we can do this together. We can't become unwoke to the mental health need that we realize is there during the pandemic. So that is like what keeps me motivated. And I just, I really hope people can come together to, to make that vision happen from both the payer and insurer side, as well as the providers and the policymakers. Amazing. Jenna, thank you very much for making the time. And I'm sure we'll be hearing much more from the big health team going forward. Awesome. Thank you again for having me, Eugene. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.